Welcome to the Grace Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to become a community of grace and peace for the good of our city and the fame of Jesus. Every Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m., we gather together at the Malco Theater in Collierville, Tennessee, to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith by worshiping God through music, scripture, and a message for our lives. So if you're looking for a church home where you can feel loved and accepted as part of God's family, then come and join us at Grace Hill Church. You can visit our website at gracehill901.com for more information about our services and what we have planned for the upcoming weeks. We look forward to connecting with you. Now here's this week's message. Uh, also, I was, I was noticing Brian Penlack was here playing bass today. I was glad to see Brian. It's good to be here. Oh, there he is. He's right behind me. <laughs> I went to a little concert of his, and he kept calling me out the whole time. Guess what I'm going to do today, Brian? <laughs> Let's, do it. Let's do it. Oh, man, I'm good, glad to be with you guys. We're in a series called Encountering Christ, Encountering Jesus. And um, I want to tell you a little bit about my initial experience of encountering Jesus. I was um, 16 years old. Um, I was brand new to the... Memphis area. My family had just moved here as a junior in high school. And at school, I met a guy who, uh, for some reason, decided to challenge me about what I believed. I told him I was an agnostic. And uh, he said, you don't want to be an agnostic. And he talked to me about Jesus. And, and this was Jesus encountering me through this guy. And he really challenged me to begin thinking about what it meant to be a Christian. And then uh, I went to church one night for a, a special youth meeting, um, had a speaker there who gave his testimony and um, talked about what it meant to be forgiven in Jesus Christ. At the very end of his um, presentation, he asked us all to bow our heads to pray. And then he said this, he said, now if you know that you need Jesus, you need his forgiveness. I want you to just raise your head up, catch my eye, and then you can put your head back down. And suddenly, inexplicably, I started getting hot and sweaty, like, oh, man, I, I felt like I'm, maybe I'm supposed to raise my head up and look at him, but I didn't do it. That feeling passed, and so, you know, I was done. I was relieved. <clears throat> my friend from school and my brother had come to this meeting, and when he dismissed us, he said, now, every one of you who looked up at me, I want you to stay behind for a few minutes. I want to talk to you. And so I got up to leave, and my brother and my friend stayed. And then lo and behold, this guy was speaking in the next service, the, the, the church-wide service. And I honestly can't remember <laughs> what he said. But at the very end of the service, he gave an invitation for those of you who need to know Jesus, to know his forgiveness um, I want you to come down here. And so my friend, my, my brother and I, we all walked down front. And I asked Christ to, to forgive me that night. He encountered me, and it was life-changing. It was um, the beginning of uh, many encounters with Jesus. I'm sure that, that most or all of you here have encountered Jesus um, I'll bet it was different every time for every one of you, no, no two alike, but it was also life-changing. There's just no one, nothing like Jesus. 
Um, to encounter him is at once the, the loveliest and the most disconcerting experience of your life. Uh, you can't be neutral toward Jesus, can you? You just, he evokes a, like a visceral response from you. You're either for him or you're against him. And every encounter with Jesus is powerful. It's life-giving. It's relational. You know, as if relations were the stuff of the universe, which they are. That's what encountering Jesus is like. And today we're going to look at a, an encounter that Jesus had with two of his very best friends, two women, Martha and Mary. They were the sisters of a, another good friend of his, Lazarus. And this is found in John chapter 11. Uh, and if you would, let's stand, let's read this passage uh, from God's word. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were in her, with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the eyes, blind man's eyes, also have kept this man from dying? This is the reading of God's holy word. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm not sure you've had uh, the same experience I've had reading this, but one of the first things I do is I kind of respond with, with questions to this passage, like, why doesn't Jesus go straight to Mary and Martha's house? Why does he stay outside, just outside the village? And then uh, why does 
Martha leave the house to go meet him and Mary stays? One of my questions. Uh, how did Martha hear that Jesus was coming? Why go out to meet him instead of just waiting for him to come to the house? Mary was weeping. Was Martha weeping? Is Martha complaining to Jesus? Is Mary complaining to Jesus when they say what they say? Why were Martha and Mary so certain that Jesus would have healed their brother? And why doesn't Jesus say the same thing to Mary as he said to Martha? You know, I'm the resurrection and the life. What does Jesus mean when he says that? That the one who believes in him will live even though he dies. In fact, he'll never die. So for a little bit of context, um, we need to understand that uh, what preceded this encounter with Jesus was um, Lazarus had gotten sick. Uh, Martha and Mary had sent word to him. He was in another place kind of far away about Lazarus being sick. And when he received the message, the exact message was this, Lord, the one you love is sick. And then the text says, this is earlier in chapter 11, it says, when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, did he say that out loud to the messenger? Did the messenger hear that and take that back? And then he says, now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. So this discussion arises with the disciples, you know, about how dangerous it is or would be for Jesus to go back to Judea. You know, he could be killed there. In fact, hadn't the Jews just prior to this tried to stone him while he was there in Judea? But Jesus asserts that he needs to go because Lazarus has fallen asleep and he needs to wake him up. Does it seem uh, odd to you that it says in the text that Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, and so he stayed because Jesus loves him, he delays for a couple of days to go see him. So when he arrives, Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. And that sets the stage for this encounter. We're told that Mary, Martha, Lazarus were living in, had been living in Bethany, which was a short distance from Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, it's just um, over the eastern, the ridge um, of um, Mount Moriah, or the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem. Uh, you've probably seen pictures of Jerusalem taken from this ridge. You look kind of down and you can see the, the Temple Mount, uh, where now is the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, two Muslim buildings. Beautiful way to take a picture. Just over that ridge to the east was Bethany. And we're told that many Jews had come to comfort Martha and Mary. And, you know, think about it. This is really a wonderful custom, uh, something they practiced uh, to, come, to help people who are grieving. They would come and visit. They'd do this for days on end. 
But it's interesting that John calls these people Jews. Now, um, this is his common way of referring to Jesus' enemies. And I know it seems a little strange because Jesus is a Jew, his disciples are Jews, everybody in this, in this story, in this account are Jews, but when John says the Jews were there to comfort them, that's his signal, that's his way of letting us know that these people were dangerous to Jesus. These were the people that had tried to stone him, you know, not too long before this. The disciples had warned him about these people. And this probably helps explain why Jesus didn't go directly to the house of Martha and Mary. His enemies were there. Um, people that didn't like him, people that were opposed to him. It would not have been a friendly environment for Jesus to meet with them. And yet Jesus is famous, he's well known. And so when he comes to the village, you know, certainly someone notices this and they send message to the house of Lazarus, to Martha and Mary, that Jesus is here. He's right here outside the, outside the village. So the word spread and they get knowledge of this and, and then Martha leaves to go get him. Now why to go meet with him? Why did she leave the house to go? And again, it's hard to say, but maybe she's the only one that knew that Jesus had come to the outside of the village. Maybe she's the only one that got that message. Or maybe Mary was too involved in conversation with those who had come to comfort her. But Martha is desperately eager to talk to Jesus. And so she goes. She has, she has a question for Jesus, doesn't she? And I'll bet you know what the question is. Why didn't you come sooner? Why did you wait so long? Why, Jesus, why? I mean, you've had concerns about Jesus, haven't you? I've had concerns about Jesus. We've wondered, you know, why he hasn't responded to a need that we had. Um, we asked him to meet the need. He didn't meet the need. We've been disappointed or maybe even deeply hurt that he hasn't rescued someone we love from dying. He hasn't healed a relationship that was critical or, or crucial to us. He hasn't provided us with something we really desperately wanted. And Martha is no different from you and me. She's, she's struggling. She's disappointed. But she doesn't actually ask Jesus that question, why didn't you come sooner? She doesn't set, do that, does she? She makes a statement. Uh, we find it in verses 21 and 22. We've already read it, but let me read it again. She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Isn't that a fascinating thing to say? I mean, Lord, if you had come when my brother was still sick, you would have healed him. That's what she believes. Your love, your power to heal would have come together to Restore my brother Lazarus to health. We wouldn't be having a funeral now, Jesus. If you had come, we would, we would be rejoicing. We wouldn't be sitting in our house here crying, missing our brother. And so, yet, Lord, despite our brother being dead, despite us being devastated by this, 
I know that anything you ask from God, he'll do it for you. And what can Martha mean except you, you could raise him from the dead? Because surely Martha had heard about the, the son of the widow who lived in the village of Nain, whom Jesus raised from the dead while he was being taken to be buried. And surely she'd heard of the, the daughter of, the, of Jairus, the synagogue leader, who's, who died, and Jesus raised her up from her deathbed. She knew Jesus could do this. And so even though she doesn't ask Jesus to do this, she's kind of making an indirect ask, isn't she? By saying, I know whatever you ask from God, God will do for you. She's really sort of in an indirect way asking him to do that. And at the same time, she is displaying extraordinary faith, isn't she? She really believes in Jesus and his power to do this. And, you know, it's kind of nuts, but even Jesus' enemies believe that. At the you know, very end of our passage, it's some of them said, some of Jesus' opponents said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Everyone was confident that Jesus could have healed Nazareth. Lazarus. Now, I'm going to guess that you and I probably have that same faith. We believe that. We believe Jesus can do anything. There's nothing impossible for Jesus to do. And yet that's kind of the problem we have, isn't it? We know he can do these things, like Martha. Um, Lord, if you'd been here, he would have been healed. He's done some amazing things things for us, some powerful things, but not all the time. There have been times when he could have done something. We've had loved ones die. We've uh, had loved ones or ourselves dealing with terrible illness. We've had marriages, we're seeing marriages end. We've seen children go off the reservation. Why does Jesus only sometimes do these miraculous things and other times he doesn't? This is what Martha's struggling with. This is what we struggle with. And it's interesting, at this point in the encounter with Martha and Mary, Jesus doesn't immediately offer to raise Lazarus from the dead, does he? Instead, it seems like he kind of offers Martha, this little consolation, he says, your brother will rise again. What does that mean? <laughs> does he mean uh, Lazarus is going to be raised again in a few short minutes when I go to his tomb and call his name? Martha doesn't seem to take it that way. She says, oh, Lord, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, that's, that's the orthodox belief and understanding that's what was taught in the Old Testament. That's what the Pharisees taught. Now, the Sadducees didn't teach that, but they're the minority. That's, this is the common belief and understanding. But that's when Jesus says this really strange thing. And you've got to admit, uh, you read through the Gospels, Jesus says some strange things. You know, I think about in John chapter 6 when he says to his disciples or to the people there he's preaching to, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Some of his disciples, oh, that's too much, and they, they cut out. Jesus was, that's part of his way is to say things that are really unusual. 
It makes me think, believe it or not, it makes me think of Abraham Lincoln. I don't know if any of you saw the movie Lincoln by Spielberg, but Lincoln, of course, you know, he was elected president. He, the guys that he ran against who lost, he made part of his cabinet. One of those was Edwin Stanton, who was a lawyer, a politician, obviously. Jesus, uh, Lincoln made him his uh, secretary of war. This is during the Civil War. And Stanton did a fantastic job. He, he helped organize the massive military resources of the North and win the victory. President Lincoln was also a lawyer, but he was kind of the more, you know, backwoods type, um, less refined type of a person, you might say. He was kind of a folk. During one of these tense moments in the war room as they're watching the progress of the war, uh, Lincoln begins to tell a story to try to deal with the, you know, the stress that's feeling, that they feel in the room right at that moment. And in Stanton, as soon as he hears him start, he says, no, you're going to tell a story? I don't believe I can bear to listen to another one of your stories right now. And he stomps out. You think the disciples kind of ever felt that way when Jesus started saying some of the unusual stuff that he would say? Because some of the stuff he would say could leave you confused, perplexed, you know, maybe even angry. And this one thing that Jesus says seems really outrageous. Look at verse 25 and 26. Martha says, I know he'll rise at the resurrection. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? How do you process something like that? I mean, how could any man, rationally or without egotistic self-regard, say something like, I am the resurrection and the life? And when Jesus asks Martha, she believes him when he says this, what does she do? She immediately says, yes, I believe that, Lord. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Whoa, what a statement. And, and that's it, isn't it? If Jesus is the Messiah and he's the Son of God, then it's not irrational or egotistical for him to say this. I am the resurrection and life. He's the only one that could ever say that. He's the Son of God. He's the Word made flesh. He's the God-man. He can say this. But it still leaves the question, what does that mean? What do you mean when you say that, Jesus? And here's Martha, concerned with her brother's death, um, wondering if Jesus might ask God to return Lazarus' life to his, his body, thinking about this resurrection that you know, might not happen for a long, long time, and she and Mary might have to mourn the loss of their brother the rest of their lives. But Jesus is saying that when it comes to the believer to die, when that happens, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Knowing him is resurrection and life. The one who believes in Jesus, he says, even if he dies physically, he will live spiritually. 
everyone who lives physically and believes in Jesus will never die spiritually. Knowing Jesus is knowing life. Knowing Jesus is knowing unending life. And even better than that, it's knowing resurrection kind of unending life. Do we believe this? What did Jesus tell the thief on the cross when both of them were dying? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus understood that when the body dies, the spirit leaves and goes to another place. And he said, your spirit and my spirit will both go to paradise. This is a place that um, Jesus in another place in Luke chapter 16 calls Abraham's side. And it's a place of comfort and reward. And at that time, it was a place um, located in Hades, the underworld. But Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12 that paradise is now in the third heaven. Heaven, heaven, God's abode. So now when we talk about when a person dies physically, where does their spirit go? For the believer, their spirit goes to heaven, where Jesus is. Lazarus was a believer in Jesus, wasn't he? And so Jesus is telling Martha that Lazarus is actually right now enjoying life in paradise. Lazarus is not really dead. Yeah, he's awaiting the resurrection of his body, at which time, you know, his body will be restored, joined back to his spirit, and he'll be the whole human being again. But he's very much alive and Martha believes this because she believes Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the resurrection and the life. So Martha believes this. She doesn't have to grieve, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, she doesn't have to grieve like the rest who have no hope. She has hope. Jesus tells Martha that he wants to speak to Mary. Her sister. And so Martha returns to her home to get Mary. She wants Mary to have hope also. And so when Mary gets up quickly to go see Jesus, all the mourners there with her think she's going to the graveside. So we got to go with her. So they all get up and they follow her. And apparently, Martha hasn't spent any time telling Mary what she and Jesus talked about. Jesus said, I want to talk to Mary. She goes and gets Mary. They come. And Mary then, when she sees Jesus, she says the exact same thing Martha said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can imagine that uh, Mary and Martha had been talking about this for days now before Jesus got there. And probably saying this very thing, if Jesus had just come. And so they both say it to Jesus. But Mary, as she says it, she's weeping. It doesn't say Martha was weeping, and probably she wasn't. But that's the point. These, they're sisters, but they're two very different people. They're unique personalities, distinct from one another. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't say anything to Mary, really, like he did to Martha, does he? What does he do? He cries. He 
cries and he gets angry. And both those emotions going on at the same time. He sees her crying. He sees the Jews, those who oppose him, crying also with her. And it says he's deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And everywhere else in the New Testament, that phrase indicates indignation and hot anger. There's a commentator, an older commentator, Meyer, who rightly says this. He said, Jesus was angered then at the Jews when he saw them lamenting with the deeply feeling Mary and professing by their cries of condolence to share her feelings while at the same time aware that they were full of bitter hostility to Jesus, who was the beloved friend, both of those who mourned and of him whom they mourned, Lazarus. You can't be professing to be friends with Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and you hate the one they loved and the one who loved them. You can't do that. There's some hypocrisy there. And likewise, for Jesus, you can't be a true friend and not be moved by your friend's emotions and sorrow. And what's wild about this is Jesus knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he still cries. He cries with, with Mary and Martha, the ones who really love him. This is something extraordinary. He didn't, he didn't necessarily cry with Martha when he was interacting with her, but he cries with Mary. And again, this is one of the really cool things about our encounters with Jesus. None of them are copycat. No encounter with Jesus is one size fits all, is it? They're every one of them unique and special. Like Mary and Martha, we're, we're all unique individuals. We have a Jesus who interacts with us as unique individuals. So we can't expect our encounters with Jesus to be just like someone else's. Now this may sound like I'm, I'm ragging on the charismatic movement. I'm not as a wonderful movement, but just because you speak in tongues when you encounter Jesus doesn't mean I have to speak in tongues when I encounter Jesus. I had an experience in an encounter with Jesus many years ago in which I could not speak as a result of it. Maybe, should that be the requirement? Everybody has an encounter with Jesus they should not be able to speak? You know, it just doesn't make sense. Every encounter with Jesus is unique and special. He, he doesn't deal with everyone the same way. And so... Neither should we. Now Jesus asks, all right, where is Lazarus buried? And he's about to do something. But wait, Jesus is God, right? God knows everything. Why does Jesus have to ask for directions to where Lazarus is buried? Shouldn't he already know that? But this is a failure, I think, to understand how Jesus was living out being both God and man. Jesus, I believe, was not exercising his deity at all while he was here in the flesh. Think about it. That's why, for example, um, he didn't know when he was coming back to set up the kingdom. He said only the Father knows that. Not the angels, not even the Son. Only the Father knows that. He didn't choose, apparently, to access his divine knowledge his all-knowing knowledge. 
And when Jesus did miracles, casting out demons, for example, it wasn't him using his own divine power. He was doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why when the Pharisees complained and said, you're casting out demons by the power of Satan, Jesus said, that's blasphemy against the Spirit. Not against Jesus, against the Spirit, whose power was the power that made these demons leave. And it was also the Holy Spirit then, I believe, that was giving Jesus special knowledge at various times that he couldn't have otherwise known because he wasn't accessing his divine knowledge. Like when he met with a Samaritan woman at the well. <coughs> and he says, you know, I know that you've had five husbands and the one you're living with now is not your husband. The Holy Spirit gave him that knowledge, that information. So Jesus was living in dependence upon the Holy Spirit just as we can and just as we must. And he was showing how a human can live in connection and relationship to God. We know what Jesus did next, don't we? He raised Lazarus from the dead. He, he is the resurrection and the life. Now, I'm going to say this. He didn't technically resurrect Lazarus. We would say he resuscitated him. What I mean by that is Lazarus didn't get an imperishable body. That's what the resurrection does. It gives you a body that will never die. Lazarus died again after this. Jesus is actually the first one ever resurrected, ever get that imperishable body. That's why Paul says he's the first fruits. He's the first fruits of all who believe, who, of all who will be resurrected. So, you know, unless we're alive when Jesus comes back, we'll die physically, our spirits We'll leave and go to heaven where we'll wait for Jesus to come back and he'll bring us, our spirits with him and resurrect our bodies. They'll be joined together again and we'll have a new kingdom life. But here's the question. Why, why did Jesus delay coming to Lazarus? Why wait the way he did? When he could have come, healed him, spared everyone who loved Lazarus this tremendous grief and misery why did he wait and the answer in this context seems obvious he, he had a greater bigger purpose for this situation for Lazarus and in this case it was to show Jesus power over death I mean he, he could have healed Lazarus when he was sick but raising Lazarus from the dead man that's a huge miracle. That's, that plays an even greater note, doesn't it? Some believed, in fact, that a person's spirit hung around the grave, hung around the body for three days. So Jesus waits long enough so that it's four days Lazarus has been in the grave. This is no second-rate miracle. This is an absolute, overwhelming, powerful demonstration of God through the Messiah. Our youngest son um, is a pastor in the Boston area. He, um, he's been preaching, had preached recently a series through the book of Romans. And in Romans 8, you know, Paul tells us that the sufferings of this age are not worth comparing with the glory which will be revealed to us in the coming age. 
and that when we're suffering, we don't know what to pray. But the Holy Spirit prays for us according to the will of God, Paul says. The Holy Spirit doesn't always pray for whatever suffering we're experiencing to be removed, obviously, (laughs) does he? Because the Father would do that. He'd remove that if that's what he prayed. He doesn't always, maybe even often, pray for the removal of our suffering. And I can speak firsthand of that. Um, He didn't remove my suffering when I had my gallbladder event and my pancreatitis, some of the most unbearable pain I've ever felt. The Holy Spirit instead prayed for me to endure that suffering and even to learn from it. He wanted me to grow through that experience. He wants us many times to grow through the experience of suffering and pain. So my son said, you know, God is asking us to trust him in our suffering. And it's like he asks us, do you love me? Do you trust me? Am I enough for you? Do I love you, Lord? Yes. Yes, Lord, I love you. Randall, do you trust me? Yes, Lord, I trust you. Am I enough for you? Yes, Lord, you're enough for me. I think this is what Jesus was, in essence, asking Martha and Mary. Do you trust me? Do you love me? Do you, am I enough for you? His purpose for our suffering isn't always to deliver us from it, is it? <laughs> when he doesn't raise our loved one from the dead, when he doesn't heal our illness, we may not know what his purpose is. What's his greater purpose? But we know that his purpose is good. We trust him. We love him. And he's enough for us. He's the resurrection and the life. You know, it's kind of like um, taking our kids for their vaccinations. You, know, you take them into the doctor's office. You're subjecting them knowingly to pain, right? You hold them <laughs> while the, this person comes at them and jabs them in the arm. And what, what must they be thinking about you? Why are you my parent who loves me? Why are you letting this happen? We don't deliver them from the pain. Why? We know there's a bigger purpose their pain. It's so that there might not be a greater pain that comes into their lives in the future. We hope our children love us. We hope they trust us. We hope they know we're enough for them. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, Lazarus. They trusted him. They learned through this experience that Jesus was enough for them. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. There really is no death in those who know Jesus, no spiritual death with him. There's weeping for our loved ones. He weeps with us. He weeps over our physical death, surely, but he's got to be rejoicing because of our spiritual life that's with him forever in heaven. He's the one whom to know is to know life. Your encounter with Jesus always leads to life. It always leads to the stuff of life, those relationships, relationship with him that's so important and powerful. Have you 
encountered him this way.